We're about to explore something near and dear to me, the water situation in California. I've written about it, and I've studied it extensively. I lived there for 17 years. A few years back, the team I worked with found some shocking numbers on just how dry California is. It's not just the snow in the mountains or the water in the reservoirs, but the water being stored underground. That's called groundwater. It's a process that requires land to be able to absorb and store water in soils and rock layers called aquifers. And those aquifers are running out of water. Some of the headlines of the op-eds I wrote are pretty dire. In the LA Times back three or four years ago, California has about one year of water stored. Will you ration now? Is the California drought America's water wake-up call? Water wake-up call? Finally, I'm not sure it was. In 2017, our wild, wet winter doesn't change this reality. California will be short of water forever. Then in 2018, I switched it up so that instead of just depressing Californians, I went for the whole world. Here's that headline. Earth's dismal water future mapped. So listen, a little little anecdote on some of these headlines for uh, these opinion pieces that I wrote. When I first started writing the opinion pieces, um, you hand them in, you might write a headline, but the headline that shows up in the newspapers is written by a headline writer or an editor. And so in this particular, there's one opinion piece that I wrote that nearly just moved to NASA, and this nearly got me fired. And the story goes something like this. I wrote the theme of the opinion piece was something like, oh, we're up the creek without a paddle, and I sort of used that throughout the opinion piece. And I think the headline that I submitted was something like, up a dry creek. So I submitted it and was told that it would be published the next day. And uh, I was working at NASA at the time. I mentioned it to some of my superiors at NASA. NASA is extremely hierarchical. And their eyes just opened wide like, you did what? We didn't know about this. And in short, what happened was, so you know, I went home after work and started getting all these phone calls and started seeing all these emails and started getting calls from all the press. And I thought, hey, this is really cool. My opinion piece is doing really well, okay? And then I saw the headline, which read, California will be out of water in one year. Will you ration now? And I thought, "Uh uh-oh, that is not what I wrote. And then what followed was a near disaster. The press doesn't often distinguish between an opinion piece and a research paper that I might write. So they just saw that a NASA scientist, in fact, the senior water scientist at the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory, said that California would be out of water in a year. And immediately, the headlines went out. NASA says California will be out of water in one year. And this was my only experience ever with anything truly going viral. Because of it, I nearly lost my job. I got called into the equivalent of the vice principal's office every day the next week. I was told that I could, I should consider moving back to UC Irvine, where I still held a faculty position. But um, ironically, 
the public acceptance and the level at which public awareness was raised was off the charts. So in sum, I think it was awesome. I'm sure you get the theme of all this. I was once called delightfully glum. But also, I'm really worried. You're listening to Let's Talk About Water, a podcast by the Global Institute for Water Security and the Walrus Lab. We're going to dig into where things are at in California now with our guest who lives and works there. <laughs> okay. 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 Let's 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 talk 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 Something about that intro music makes me just want to thump that bass and ring a cowbell. Uh, all right. Nusha Jami joins me today for this episode of Let's Talk About Water. She's the director of urban water policy at Stanford University and its Water in the West program. She's also a senior research engineer at Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment and a member of the California State Water Resources Control Board in the San Francisco Bay Region. Now, she works in a state where I have considerable background as well. I worked at the University of California, Irvine, which is where I met Nushin when she was still a graduate student, and at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where I was kind of busy mapping out the world's water future. And when you look at the map we made, it's pretty simple. Areas that are blue have lots of water, too much water, actually, and areas that are red, well, they mean what red almost always means. Think of the check engine light flashing in your car or flashing ambulance lights. Red equals bad. They're in serious drought or they're using so much groundwater that it's running out. And on our water map, California is bright red. So with that in mind, I bring in Nusha. She's connecting to us through Skype from an institution that needs no introduction, Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. Hey, Nusha. Hi, Jay. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Not bad. Not bad. It is great to chat with you. Same here. Um, so uh, Nusha and I have known each other for, well, it's going on, wow, this is scary, almost two decades. I uh, know. It is a scary. It, it, it is. It was a sunny day in Southern California um, back about, mm, I don't know, was it about 2001 or so, Nusha? When did you? 2003, actually. Mm-hmm. And you were on my PhD committee. I remember I remember it well. And I was looking over some of those papers, and I think I had a hard, co- had a hard copy of your dissertation for a long time, and I still might. Uh, oh, wow. I just won't, you know, I, I won't go on record as saying that I absolutely have it. But for me... Uh, working in Southern California was a real was a real eye opener in terms of the sort of responsibility to communicate the real importance of water. Um, so we go back a long way, and and over the time period, California has been through a lot of ups and downs. And I'd say over the last decade, a lot of it's been sort of on the downside. So you work right in the thick of this um, in a state that's faced with huge water scarcity issues, and it's been 
that way for a long time. Can you describe the situation there right now? Is the drought still ongoing? What are what are things what are, what's going on there? So right now we are not in a drought this year, but we are still paying back for a recent drought, severe drought that we had between 2012 and 2016, mostly because people use a lot of groundwater and uh, those groundwater reserves have been sort of depleted so significantly that needs to be recharged and replaced if possible, as you know, um, better than anyone. When you use groundwater, you actually lose storage in some areas because of subsidence, which means that you might not have any opportunity to recharge those areas. Hmm. And then every year we just pray for more snow because we have a water system that's very snow driven. And if you don't get enough snow, we might uh, face shortages during uh, summer times, which are, you know, hotter and we don't get as much rain. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, you said, uh, so I, you know, it's like, um, in California, there's an element of, of gambling, which is, you know, we're just hoping that there's enough snow so that we can refill the reservoirs so that we can make it through another year. Um, when, exactly. I was, when I was there, I started in some of these opinion pieces, which, by the way, I think had a lot more impact than any scientific paper that I ever wrote. I just thought I'd share, sure. that, share that with you. Uh, sure. um, I started using the term chronic water scarcity for places like California that never really have enough water to do all the things they want to do. Water for people, water for the environment, water to grow food, but they still still try. Do you think that in people's everyday lives in California, they really understand this? Uh, what's your sense of what people are thinking? Unfortunately, I think you touched on something very important, which is uh, people really do not think about water in their daily lives, unless if they're trying to drink it or take a shower with it, but they're not thinking where their water is coming from or where it's going. And this is partially, I would say, is our fault. Um, us as engineers, policymakers, decision makers, because, you know, people are so far away from their water resources and they really don't see a lot of water infrastructure and they don't know where the, how the water is brought to them. So they don't think about it, really. Mm. Okay, now I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but my own wife, um, as recently as maybe five years ago, um, did not know where the water that we drink was coming from. I asked her that question. Do you know where the water comes from? And she said, mm, from the tap. Um, <laughs> so, but I think that's, I think you're right. And um, I think as educators, you're right. We have a responsibility to do the best thing that, the best we can to get that message out. Scarcity is much more uh, prominent in Southern California than Northern California, mm -hmm. at least from the perception. Right. Uh, uh, you know, uh, there is a serious uh, perception of scarcity and, and every year there is a challenge. So this conversation is constantly um, in people's minds because there's, there are a lot of newspapers covering these issues and articles that uh, are written on this topic. Uh, in Northern California, 
even though we are not necessarily that much uh, more water rich than Southern California, we are slightly more water rich, but not as much, not so much. Um, we actually don't end up thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, population is smaller and uh, the system is a little bit m- less complex, I right. would say. Yeah. And, you know, it may be that as you move from north to south, you just cross over that threshold from not having to worry about it to having to worry about it or thinking about it more because it's a little drier and there's and there's more and there's you know a, bit, a much bigger concentration of people. Yes. Um, and I just want to reflect on something like in your own career. So it, in, this morning I was looking at um, some of the things that you've been working on and there's a definite shift from the things that you did as a graduate student, which were working with models, computer models, and studying uncertainty, to working at the Pacific Institute, to you know thinking about policy, and and you know now you're at uh, Water in the West, where you're thinking about resilience and policy and writing papers on green infrastructure. So maybe it's had the same impact on you. Do you see that you're? career path and your interests and maybe your social responsibility or sense of social responsibility have changed? For sure. I actually would say um, the trigger for me was a class that I took at the University of Arizona called Water Policy. And um, it was very interesting because as an engineer uh, who has been trained as an engineer at the time and still am, I guess, an engineer, um, I was... uh, really surprised how much um, water management is impacted by policy and laws. However, when we do modeling and, um, you know, hardcore hydrology or water resource management, we don't necessarily incorporate those laws and policies into our uh, models. So I think that was basically uh, an eye-opener for me. And from then on, I sort of started a path um, that uh, more and more I started trying, started learning more and more about the impacts of policy and laws and, and actually the human side of things and try to kind of bring it into my engineering approach to water resource management. It's so great hearing from people like you, Nusha. Experts are a huge resource as we deal with water security, but it's also fun to hear what your everyday person on the street has to say. So we sent out our producer to ask, what would you do if your taps ran dry? Uh, if my taps ran dry, I'd probably go shower somewhere that had running water, and uh, I'd probably be really dirty and really thirsty. There is a real chance that the water would go dry, and so I would have to I would have to leave because I mean, how you look at it, especially in an urban setting, how do you how do you function without water? You know, you'd have to move. I would find somewhere else to drink water and take a shower. <laughs> so that was uh, illuminating. What did you think of those comments, Nusha? Very interesting. And uh, the focus on showering uh, before you're thinking about eating and drinking. Yeah, I that think was maybe we I think we were maybe just in a dirty part of town. I'm not I'm not really sure. Um, okay, I want to get back and ask you some questions. So, you know, we started talking a little bit about interest in policy. By the way, who taught that class? that you took, the policy class? Uh, Bradley. Mike oh. Bradley. Oh, you know what? So we have that in common. I um, I took a class from him as well. And I have to admit, so, okay, so, so, so our listeners understand, I met Nusha at UC Irvine 
But I got my master's degree at the University of Arizona. And so when I was taking my master's degree, I had to take some water policy classes, and I absolutely hated them. And I took a class from, from Mike Bradley, and I just hated it. So it's, Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of ironic that uh, my interests have kind of turned that way. But you sure. were enlightened enough to, you know, to to see the future and to understand the importance. I, I don't know what I was what I was thinking about back then. I want to ask you a little bit about some of the policy work that you've been doing. And so let's let's start um, let's start with some of the work that you've been doing as a member of the San Francisco Bay Regional Water Quality Control Board. How have you enjoyed that work and what sort of challenges do you face there? I absolutely love it and I tell you why uh, it keeps me grounded and reminds me every day um, that um, the real world problems are sometimes very different from what we end up working in at the academic setting. And I try to bring a lot of those learnings back into my lab and try to kind of incorporate some of those into the thinking that we do. Um, you know, one element that I was really um, unaware of uh, before I s started sitting on that board was water quality. Obviously, you, you all think about water quality, but it's, you know, I was a water resource engineer and mostly focused on water supply side of things. Um, I never thought how important water quality is when it comes to water availability and access, actually. And also uh, another element of it is everything touches water quality. You know, we work on homelessness, we work on trash management, we work on so many different things that if uh, you if you ask someone um, what what do they think their relationship of that thing is, for example, trash is with water quality, may not really see the connection right there and then. But it is very important, and it's very uh, it needs a lot of focus and attention. Outside of the San Francisco Water Board, are you working on any other legislation? You know, one thing to mention is that I actually ended up uh, taking a fellowship and worked for the legislature for about a year before I joined the Pacific Institute, and um, really loved that experience. And uh, learned a lot about actually energy policy because I worked for Fran Pavley, uh, who was the sort of a mother of our climate change law in California. And um, she was very interested in renewable energy. So I ended up working on that a lot. And um, as part of that process, I learned a lot about the innovative financing mechanisms that they're in, put in place to enable the energy transition in California. So when I went back to working on water more actively, I tried to take some of those lessons and try to do more uh, policy-relevant research to inform the policymaking process about innovative financing for water. So we have worked on a lot of issues related to, you know, uh, fees and water infrastructure. Can you explain a little bit about, you mentioned some of the fees. Can you explain what those fees are just so our listeners understand? Sure. So, you know, if um, if you live in California, uh, you pay, you used to pay about a dollar every month on your, on your energy bill uh, that would go into, uh, you know, research on 
energy uh, issues or, uh, you know, um, uh, topics related to renewable energy, or it would go to paying, helping some of the people who cannot pay their energy bill um, to pay their bill, or it would actually go into focusing on innovation and developing um, uh, renewable solutions. The same fee can be applied uh, for water, uh, you know, a dollar on your bill, and that money can go a long way. You can prioritize it dep depending on what's needed at a time. But, you know, in water, we need to do a little bit more on work on innovation um, and uh, innovative solutions in the water sector, trying to build better infrastructure, trying to gather better data, trying to, um, uh, you know, help access to clean water or improve access to clean water. Um, so that's that's a fee I'm talking about, trying to kind of create these kind of fees that would uh, be put aside and allocated to certain problems at any given time. Well, that sounds like uh, a great use of the money and a, a small price to pay for potentially a tremendous amount of uh, of access to, to water. Sometimes sure. I feel like we spend a lot of time thinking about new sources of water, and, and we hear water managers speak, um, uh, use those terms, and less so about uh, conservation and efficiency. Can you talk a little bit more about... Uh, what people can do, what you do, what you think the state is doing? Actually, this is a great segue uh, to some of the work we have been doing um, in the past couple of years, which is trying to actually take a demand-centric approach to water management rather than supply-centric approach. Um, and that means that trying to understand what are the flexibilities and opportunities in reducing at what, uh, our water use, and then go back to the table and say, okay, if the demand and water demand is dropping or changing or reducing in this way, do we really need the next big dam or the next big aqueduct to bring the water in? Or do we need to go far distances to find another source of water rather than actually reallocating or reusing what we already have? Right, yeah, I think we really need to do both. Absolutely. You know, during the drought, actually, one thing that I noticed was uh, because of the uh, significant media coverage of the drought, um, uh, there was a heightened public awareness about the drought and the situation we were facing. And before the state started mandating water use restrictions, uh, people actually reduced their water use significantly. And uh, we actually did a little bit of research and found that a lot of that water use reduction was attributed to um, to the media coverage and the heightened uh, public awareness. Yeah. So when I think back on the phases of drought um, that I lived through there, which were um, 2006 to 2000, you know, roughly 2000, you know, roughly from from the decade from 2006 to through 2015. Uh, I think it was uh, almost a perfect storm in terms of, um, you know, ultimately led to the passage of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which is the uh, management uh, legislation that was passed in 2014. California was the last state in the United States to pass something like that. And I think that could have only resulted from the drought being as severe as it was, um, the media coverage being on point. 
people like you and your colleagues in California, and I was one of those ones, who uh, were doing the research and communicating about it uh, and having uh, a state board that you're now a part of being very focused on it and having a governor who was basically a, you know, an environmental warrior in Jerry Brown. Sure, and, absolutely. And uh, sometimes it takes that, uh, that perfect storm. Uh, but I agree with you that the media was uh, very, very important. My um, experiences there with some of the big newspapers like the LA Times and the San Jose Mercury News and the San Francisco Chronicle, uh, those experiences was, were very positive, I, and I thought that they uh, just did an excellent job staying staying on point, almost the same way that they stay on point with all the coverage of Trump. They were on the drought stuff. Now they're just distracted. I, just, I agree. <laughs> I just thought I would throw that in there. So when people are reading this and hearing about it, what do you think it is? What happens when they hear about this that, that makes them change their behavior? I guess it goes back to the, your earlier question on if people know where their water is coming from and where it's going, right? Um, it basically brings that element into their daily lives and make them think about it and make them sort of uh, respond to that knowledge that they are gaining, um, which they don't have right now, right? So basically a lot of these cover, I mean, you wrote a few op-eds during that time. I wrote a few op-eds and, you know, a lot of media coverage talking to people from um, so many different backgrounds on the topic. And, you know, people pay attention, you know, they follow and uh, seeing reservoirs that used to be full and now empty. And those pictures that were all over the newspapers were real and was really um, bringing this whole problem home uh, for a lot of people. I think mm. that's what it was. Yep. Uh, no, I, I agree with you. I think it had a huge, I think it had a huge impact. So um, my last uh, few questions here, Nusha. Um, so we've been talking a lot about California. Why do you think people around the world need to know about what's happening in California? Why would people in Canada care about it? Why would people in, I don't know, I'm going to Bangladesh in a couple of weeks. Why do people in sure. Bangladesh care about it? I would say different things. So people in Canada uh, care about this because, I mean, a lot of the work that we do, we do, my team does, is sort of focusing, as I said, on the human side of water resource management. If you think about it, the investments that we make in our water infrastructure and water systems, uh, it's often leads into results and consequences uh, that would have human response uh, responses to it. But, you know, we don't really incorporate that back into the system and the decision-making process. So that's really important wherever we go. doesn't matter if it's California, Canada, or any other country. I would say when you go to some of the more some of the developing countries it's a different story i would like them to think about water resource management in from a different angle they have a um you know they don't need to follow the western way of water resource management we're in a, we live in a 21st century with 21st century problems and there are 21st century solutions available to us um i'm not sure if you would have gone back and uh and knew that the consequence of, of building these massive dams and 
what the consequences are going to be and the cost of maintaining them over time, we would have built them the way we did. So, I I, I agree, and you know, you've given me um, a lot of food for thought for my for my trip to to Bangladesh. There's a lot of interest in understanding. Um, what we're doing here, and also in what mistakes we've made. And so you've raised some important things. You know, one other thing I throw into the mix, especially when we talk about Canada and uh, why Canadians should care about uh, uh, water issues in California, is that a lot of the produce that we eat in Canada comes from California. There you go. Yeah. We do a tremendous amount. Uh, California does. I keep saying we. California exports a tremendous amount of uh, of produce, of nuts, of dairy products, and and um, you know there's a reason why Canadians are so good natured. They're eating all the great produce from from California. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for talking to me today, Nusha. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jay. It was wonderful talking to you. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk About Water, a podcast dedicated to the future of water and why you should care. It's a collaboration between the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan and the Walrus Lab. If you like what you heard, throw up a review on our Apple podcast page. It will help us assert our dominance in the cutthroat world of podcasts. We'd also love to hear what you think, but mainly it's the dominance thing. We've dipped our toes into the social media waters, too. (laughs) That's good. Um, you can check us out on Facebook, facebook.com backslash L-T-A-W podcast, or on Twitter and Instagram, type in Let's Talk Water. You'll want to stay tuned, I assure you. Coming up this season, we're going to hear from a man who the New York Times has described as the globe-trotting salesman-in-chief for Dutch expertise on rising water and climate change. He's from a country that the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation says has a thousand-year head start in learning how to manage water. Why? Because it has one of the most sophisticated anti-flood systems in the world. Want to know that country? Well, like I said, subscribe and you'll find out this season. I'd like to thank the folks who make these podcast wheels turn. It's Mark Ferguson, Chelsea Laskowski, Amy Hergott, Laura McFarland, Jesse Widow.